Hello and welcome to The Stack. This week, I've welcomed a lovely trio to our studios here at Midori House. David Shaftel from the excellent tennis magazine Racket will discuss Wimbledon and their incredible run of the magazine as well. Also, always good to see David McKendrick from Paperboy. Their shock pink cover is a delight. And finally, Iliana Aluche from the Pop Manifesto. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Right in time for Wimbledon, let's talk tennis. David Shaftel stopped by at Midori House to talk to us about issue 22 of Racket Magazine and their plans for the rest of the year. It's one of those magazines that make me happy hosting The Stack, consistent and expanding. Let's have a listen. When we started, you don't know what's going to happen and you certainly can't plan for what the business is going to look like, what kind of things are going to work and what aren't ancillary to the magazine. But I thought I won't be embarrassed if we do eight. If we get to eight, I don't know why that number, but I just felt like if we got to eight, it would be a respectable project and people would love it in hindsight. So to be working on the 23rd, it kind of blows my mind when I think about it. And I'm, I'm also getting to the point because I see people out at, at Wimbledon and we're talking about players and stories we've done. And I've gotten to the point where I don't remember things we've done which is crazy because my memory is quite good. And I always remembered in granular detail every story, every quote. And now I'm certain early things are starting to slip my mind. So I think that's probably in a way a very good sign. It's only natural. I mean, you've done so many good stories throughout those years, right? And one thing about Racket, it's, it's, it's very successful. I mean, I looked at your website. Even looking at the U.S. alone, the number of stalkers you have is quite incredible, actually. Yeah, it's quite good. I mean, there might be more that are on the website. Mm. This is one of those things... I mean, you probably discuss it a lot here. We do our own circulation. So these are all individual relationships that need to be managed. And if we do well in a shop, they reach out and they want it because if they don't have to deal with a distributor, the margins for everyone are better. But a lot of people forget and you have to follow up or you go to a different town and you say, oh, I wish I was in that shop. Can we reach out? And getting people started, it's like selling drugs. It's like the first, the first five are free. Let's see how they do. And then they sell and the margin is good and they come back to us. But those are all little relationships to be managed. We are in quite a lot of stockists, but there's always more. And that's one of these things that takes time. And, and like I said, it's all a relationship and it's all a conversation. So I, I always wish we could dedicate more time to being in more stores. It feels uh, almost an organic growth in a way, right? I think so, Yeah you know, readers reach out or they'll get in touch and say, where in Stockholm can I get the magazine? And if we're not there, they'll say, why don't you tell us where you think we should be? And then we'll, and then we'll reach out. You know, of course we want people buying the, the magazines from the website also, but it is important to be, you know, in every city, especially in Europe, there's one or two stockists or stores or newsstands that we just feel we need to be in, you know, Shriji News down the road. I, Absolutely. I, I always say, no matter what, always in, in Shriji. I don't care if they pay. I don't care if they say, stop sending us magazines, always in, in Shriji. And they, and they never say, they're great. But uh, They're very trusty there. Yeah. <laughs> and what about events? I know you were recently in Paris and there was a few events from Racket. How important are they to the brand? Is that a way for actually people to find out actually about Racket? I know you have a very dedicated fan base, but how important are those events for the magazine? Oh, very important and, and becoming more and more important as our 
you know, really as, as um, stakeholders in tennis, you know, either governing bodies or brands that are in tennis, clothing brands, brands that want to be in tennis are reaching out and then they see the events and people may come to them and decide they want to be involved. So that's something that's really, you know, it was a slow growth and then it was like a sort of a sudden explosion of interest. You know, you have one really good one and it brings in a lot of interest for another one. And it's really driven a lot of the magazine's business. And yeah, and just, just people wanting to participate in the magazine, seeing those events and wanting to sort of be down. So it's something that kind of took a, a while to build up. But once we, you know, reached a certain point, it's sort of exponential. So that's been a really nice development over, I'd say, the last 18 months. And of course, issue 22 is out now. Uh, another lovely, again, amazing cover. You know, Thank that you. that pink is it, it, just brilliant. I mean, your, your covers are very consistent. Tell us, how do you decide what to cover at Racket now? Of course, there's been quite a few issues. I mean, I'm sure you're quite strict. Even we're talking about you don't, you don't cover every single tennis player. It needs to be an interesting story. It's not just being number one, right? That's right. So probably only a fraction of the magazine, maybe two of 10 mm -hmm. stories, deal with professional tennis. But it's very important for us to tell, you know, when we're dealing about the pro game, to tell the stories of players that haven't had their stories amplified. Tennis is very good about promoting their stars, Serena Williams, Novak, Roger Rafa. But below that, I feel they're sort of lazy about telling us who these players are and then someone will burst onto the scene, win a major, and people will be scrambling, even broadcasters will be scrambling to learn about these players. So the way I think about it is tennis doesn't have good bios on their own players, certainly below the top 10 players. The way I think about it is if, if a broadcaster is wondering who this player is, doing their prep for their broadcast. I want us to publish the story that they can go to and learn everything about this player, not just about their game and their history, but what their interests are, tell the whole story of the player. And there's so many players that are, have such interesting stories. We were talking about a couple of the Brazilians, and I think the public doesn't know who they are because tennis doesn't do a good story of, of telling us who they are. And, and of course, also, you know, a player who's ranked 20 or 30 or 40 in the world is an extremely accomplished athlete. They're probably the best tennis player in their country. And, you know, if, if you think about the 40th best football player, European football player, as an American, I've got to qualify. Like, this is an extremely rich and famous person who's a household name in many parts of the world. And, and that sort of 40th best tennis player is just as accomplished. And people really don't know who they are because, because I think pro tennis doesn't do a good story of telling their stories. No, that's very interesting. And another thing I like about tennis, again, I'm not an expert on the sport, but is how he managed to sell a lifestyle as well. And, for example, I was watching the trailer. I don't know if you've seen this, the new Luca Guadagnino film with Zendaya. I think she plays like a tennis right. player. I don't know. It sells. It's about fashion as well. And I think that's where Racket comes in. You said you don't cover just tennis stars. It's about the community, the, a, a tennis court in, in a place you wouldn't expect or mm -hmm. something like that, right? I think that's part of what the magazine is as well. I think that's a huge part of what the magazine is, even a bigger part almost than mm. than pro tennis. Tennis is having a, a real moment in this sort of lifestyle mm. arena. You know, I'd like to think we had something to do with that, but but who knows? Um, you did. <laughs> thank you. But yeah, it's it's a nice time to be be covering tennis because it's become so relevant in the lifestyle, in, in fashion, in film, as you mentioned, streetwear to the extent that streetwear is still thing it seems to persist but yeah tennis has really infiltrated the culture in a way that it hasn't since i was a kid in the 80s and certainly in the 70s and 80s the original tennis boom is as we call it so i think we're seeing another one which was what we decided to be the voice of a new a new tennis boom and that's it's nice to see that actually happening
And tell us about the plans, issue 23. I'm sure you're working at it. When does that come out? So that'll be out ahead of the US Open in August. And that, that issue, if I can back up, one year ago I, I was here and we talked about the issue we did with the All England Club for Wimbledon for the centenary of center court. Yes. So that was all about Wimbledon and grass court tennis. So we, so for 22, we sort of pivoted and did a lot of coverage of clay court tennis because you have the clay season in, in the spring culminating with the French Open. But for the, the August issue that typically comes out before the U.S. Open, we tend to focus more on America and the Americas, urban tennis, um, New York, Los Angeles. It's more of a, you know, all of our issues aren't themed. Like every now and then they'll be themed if at the moment I'm feeling interested in that thing and collecting stories around that. Because, you know, honestly, the magazine that I'm working on is just sort of the contents of my brain at that particular time and what, what's interesting to us and what stories are resonating so the U.S. Open one tends to be a little bit more general, but we do like to focus on America and urban tennis, public tennis courts, the sort of real DNA of racket. I mean, of course, you're based in the U.S., and it's the U.S., I presume, is your biggest market. But after the U.S., which other countries actually are interested in racket? The magazine, online, digital, and print as well. Well, England, we do we do quite well here and have a lot of interest here. And I, th I think, honestly, in the beginning, that's because over here the British sort of got independent publishing quicker and easier than, than in America. In America, you know, we talk about the magazine and then people are sort of like, well, so what, you go to the tournaments and write all the articles, then they see it and they're like, oh, I see what this is. In England, you're like, oh, you know, we have an independent magazine about tennis. It resonates really quickly, like what it is, because it's something that's more in the culture here, or certainly in the media culture, as you well know. In Canada, we do quite well. And then we have these little pockets in Europe, Barcelona, Berlin, places like that. Thank you very much, David. And issue 22 of Racket is out now. We continue with Paperboy. As they say, delivering good news since 2021. The upbeat title founded by David McKendrick just released issue 4 with a beautiful magenta-colored cover. The theme for issue 4 is luck. David, tell us more. So Paperboy is now on issue four. We launched it in its first issue in 2020 with the idea that it's about good news only. It was born in lockdown and since then it's grown and adapted to its surroundings, to the nature of the world. Like I say, it was born during the Great Pause. So a lot has changed since then. We've tried to keep the editorial along the same vibes. It's a, it's a magazine that's designed to lighten up your day. We've kept it on the same track for the last four issues. The last issue launched eight weeks ago. It's went pretty steady. Sales are sales are pretty good, so we're almost sold out, which is a new record, even though we're only on our fourth issue. So yeah, it's always always pretty good in the paperboyhood. Although you know, as we discussed before we were on air, things have changed a lot in the world out there. For better and worse, I would say. Do you think there's already a Paperboy community out there? I know you had a, a few events with the launch, and, and, and I feel you're such a nice, charismatic guy as well. I mean, do you feel that, that, that there's people like, oh my God, I love Paperboy, that they are very in tune? Because, as you said, it's in the fourth issue already. Yeah, I mean, th th there's a loyal customer base. We do a pre-order, firstly, to be completely transparent, to fund the issue, because it's an expensive beast to produce. Mm -hmm. Those little details don't come for free. So we do a pre-order, in which we sell around 30% of the issues. So they're a loyal customer base. I recognise the names that pop up every now and again. It's, it's quite warming. And yeah, yeah, I, I guess when people ask for issues, one, 
um, all the way through and back issues and stuff. So any that I do have, I try to distribute because that's the nature of it. It's left me with a depleted stock. I've got a few ragged edged issue ones lying around. So that's quite a, a flattering thing, I guess. I guess, but you know, being someone who doesn't always focus on the positives, uh, you know, I, I, I don't tend to remember those things. And you mentioned that is an expensive piece to make. I mean, but of course, you are an expert in design. Of course, that was your main kind of focus at the beginning of your career and still is in some ways. But look at the cover. I mean, it is quite a special type of paper as well. And in issue four, I would like you to, you know, every single issue, there's like a little surprise. For example, I have some scratch cards in this new issue as well. You know, I love that. It's very tactile in a way. Well, yes. I mean, it's always been the idea around it. Each issue has its own theme. This one in particular is about good luck, hence the scratch card and those details. As you mentioned, you know, I, I'm a graphic designer and art director, so the devil is in the details as such. But these things do come at a cost. I mean, I should have invited my accountant along and he would be able to give you a, a more accurate <laughs> accurate summary of where exactly um, <laughs> Paperboy as a, as a business. But no, th th these details are important. They're important because I'm trying to challenge what a magazine is. The cover material you mentioned is an unusual substrate. It's unbound book jacket material that's normally bound onto a card and made into hardback books. So, uh, you know, I, since day one, I've been messing with what a magazine is. I, I don't know if you remember back to issue one, but we put a book of stamps in the back. And the yes. idea is when you're finished with the issue, it's got a life beyond. So, you know, you're playing with what's happening in the world at that moment, as well as, as playing with the, the idea and the physicality around what a magazine is. I love that. And, and, and even, you know, tell us about the kind of the content. I, I mean, I do think it's things that makes us joyful. I mean, there's always incredible photography about the pleasures of life. Uh, in a way, that's at least how I see, how I perceive the magazine. So tell us some of the highlights, actually, from the new issue, from uh, issue four. I mean, there are plenty, but I always love the photo shoot. Even this picture here of crisps, for some reason, made me very happy. Well, I'm very glad about that. It made me very happy as well. <laughs> the issue, as always, you know, the whole ethos of it is, is around good news. Mm -hmm. This one specifically, the good news of good luck. Mm -hmm. The one before was about the future. The one before that was about generosity. So there's always, there's always a take on it, and that's always a starting point. There's a number of writers in there who are regulars, such as Lou Stoppard, and I literally throw them an email and I say, here's what we're doing this time around. And they generally come back and deliver every time. And the idea is, is you know, I, I feel like, you know, generosity and good news are they're generally quite infectious things. So in many ways, just by starting the ball rolling, it, it, it kind of takes control. I mean, you'll see with the fashion in there as well. Mm slight twist on there where it's cool bags and instead of them actually being cool bags that you're going to get into Selfridges and buy they're physical cool bags that's going to keep your beer cool in the summer which is very appropriate for a day like today but you know I'm, I'm always kind of messing around with the idea of what a magazine is and the content of a magazine and generally taking a little bit more of a light-hearted view on it I'm a consumer of magazines and sometimes I don't leave magazines with a smile on my face sometimes I think god that could have been better I feel that I'm trying to have fun and I think a lot of people might have forgotten to have fun in publishing, especially magazine publishing. And I don't want it to be like a, a magazine that's ha-ha, you know, the people who write for it are hard-hitting, they've got something, something to say. But I generally like to cast them a, a more optimistic brief. I agree with you. I do think sometimes even something that is a little bit more tongue-in-cheek and, and colourful, I do, I do agree that it's missing. I mean, there's still great magazines out there, but 
yeah, I think we need more kind of kind of Davids in the world, perhaps. Well, that's very kind. <laughs> but tell us, you had other experiences with magazines, of course. I remember we worked together a long time ago in this choir, right? That's right, yeah. So tell us, do you still contribute to other magazines or or, or you just kind of focused on Paperboy now? Well, fundamentally, I'm a graphic designer and mm -hmm. art director. I do write occasionally. Um, I've written a couple of bits for Mr. Porter. I write the editor's letter in this, which is generally doctored by someone who actually can spell, which is useful. Part of the reason Paperboy exists is my frustration of working with editors. And, <laughs> and You and, can decide everything well, now, is there? I can decide everything. <laughs> you know, I'm not necessarily sure whether that's a, that's a good thing or not, but it's, yes, it's certainly... As we discussed the last time we spoke, this magazine has been in my head for about 10 years. And The Great Pause gave me the opportunity to firstly reflect on where I was and where I was in my career. And I had been running my own company for around six or seven years. So I think it was it was time for me to develop this idea. And being robbed of going out for dinner and having a social life gave me the opportunity, the time and probably the brain space to bring Paperboy to life. And also, you know, the, the involvement of young people in it. It's kind of a secret weapon. You know, there's some school kids write for it. There's some undergraduates contribute to it. So I kind of try and mix them with the, the qualified and the, the accomplished people. And I use the word accomplished lightly. I probably mean more experienced people. So I kind of try and knit them in seamlessly so that young people get a little bit of an opportunity to get published as well. In the digital world that we live in, I think publishing them in print is quite a unique thing and hopefully something that's got some longevity for them and and their careers, I hope. Absolutely. But David, before you go, actually, you know, I do have scratch accounts for the new issue. And I, shall I check? Maybe I am lucky. I think you should check. And and, and, where, and where should you do check? It's an interesting one. There's two things about the scratch card. Now, Paperboy is a labour of love. And I would guarantee you, if you do walk into a Tesco's in Hackney Road and you try and buy 1,500 scratch cards for a pound each, you will get some funny looks. In fact, you'll get some more than some funny <laughs> looks. In fact, you might even be there for three hours trying to buy those scratch cards. And then you'll actually just leave with 50 because it just turned into too much trouble. So I've spent the last sort of, um, yeah, quite a long time trying to buy these scratch cards. The other conundrum came is that one you're scratching, the maximum prize is £7,000. Now, you can buy them and you can win £100,000. Now, the thought of someone winning £100,000, and if I'd had that £100,000 scratch card in my office and in my th and someone wrote to me and said, we've won grand," I don't think I could have lived with myself. So there was a, there's a choice in the fact that the maximum you can win there is £7,000. have you done? I think I've done. And, and sorry, I'm not an expert on scratch cards. Did I win something? Hold on. Price table, three sevens. Sorry, I will. It's a very complex thing that's happening here. Not if you're Glaswegian. Hand it here, I'll tell you. <laughs> Please. Right, <let laughs> Sorry, my, I'm quite... <laughs> there we go. No, you've not... Oh, oh. oh no, no, oh. I'm afraid not. No, no, not so lucky this time. You need to buy another copy of Paperboy. Thank you very much, David. And issue four of Paperboy is out now. And now let's talk about a new publication. It's called the Pop Manifesto and is founded by Iliana Alushei. It focuses on fun and thought-provoking conversations with today's most interesting innovators in music, fashion, art, tech and design. It's digital, but there are plans for a zine as well, coming soon. Let's have a listen from Iliana. 
The Pop Manifesto is a publication that I created to kind of highlight innovative and interesting creatives that I've met in my life and also who inspire me and I feel like are doing amazing things in their fields. And the title kind of came from when I was at school, I got really obsessed by like the idea of writing a manifesto for your life, writing a manifesto for your art. And I was very interested in popular culture. And that was kind of like, I went to my degrees in digital media and I was like very much focused on like how popular culture translates in digital art, etc. And I was like, maybe I'll start something, you know, I'm, I had that name in my head since I was a kid, basically. And at some point I was like, maybe I'll do a publication that is kind of a manifesto about popular culture and what I think for me is popular culture, not necessarily what maybe everyone else thinks it is. Mm. And so that's where the, that name came from. Well, I think the name is very strong. Also, I'm, I'm happy you decided to stick with it because it's not quite the first iteration of it, right? Exactly. Tell us a bit more about that. Originally, when I first came up with the name, I always had an inkling that I wanted to make it into a publication, a digital publication. I really value the importance of having accessibility for a lot of people. You know, I grew up on a lot of different print publications and I love them. But I feel like there's a barrier to everyone being able to access really expensive magazines that have really interesting conversations and interviews with people. And so that's always been in my mind to build a publication that is digital, accessible, and hopefully is interesting to people. And so I originally did one with a friend of mine. We kind of like did a very dense version of the, so we were like, it was hyper-designed, very stressful to make. <laughs> and at that time I was like, we can't, our brain space couldn't figure out how to make it viable constantly. So we kind of put it on pause and I moved on, did my own projects and stuff. And then I decided during COVID that I missed having conversations with people, editorial interviewing people. I just find it really fun and interesting to learn more about people that I find interesting. <laughs> and I, I was like, maybe I'll just like bring it back. But in a version that now I'm like more understanding of how things work. I have access to more things and more experience in how to do things. I can make something more successful and more like hopefully have more longevity. And that's what this version is now. I feel like that it's going to be able to move with the times, be in flux, have the flexibility to grow throughout the years. And I want to know more about what do you think about the pop music press in a way, because what I find interesting about the pop manifesto from what I've read, you know, there's space for quite in-depth, you know, chats with the artist or, or, or creative, because I feel sometimes some magazines, it, it can be quite superficial at times. Sometimes you're just trying to sell something and the interviews, they're quite, you don't learn too much yeah. from it. I don't choose people by like their rollout plans. Mm. So I feel like that's kind of important for me. It's just like... They may have an album, like if it's an artist, they may have an album out. Mm -hmm. If they're a designer, they may have some, a book out or whatnot. But I don't choose for that. And I think a lot of publications to fill space because content is money for mm -hmm. people that they need to constantly be writing stuff. And then when people pitch them, they're just like, let's just do that and send an email with a lot of questions. For want of a better like line, it's a kind of lazy journalism. So for me, I prefer to just sit with, ideally I'm sitting with someone in the room, same room as them, if not a Zoom, and I'm just basically recording our conversation. And a lot of it is like just slightly edited conversation to fit into like, you know, it's online, you don't want to read too much. Your eyes will hurt. <laughs> well, and, and the design of the website is great. Thank so I you. Think, I, think, I think especially with digital, this is so important because it needs to be 
as you said, accessible to the eye as well. Yeah, I was very conscious of making it look good on mobile. I ensured that, like, originally I was like, oh, I'm going to make it all colorful and fun. And Mm -hmm. then I was like, my eyes will hurt personally. (laughs) And I know other people's will. And they were just like, you want people to be comfortable with reading it. That's why the colors were chosen that were chosen for it. And the style and the size of the lettering. And it was specifically designed for that version of it. It was specifically designed for online. And we spent, me and the designer spent a lot of time just like really making sure that works. For example, in the last one, I was when we, when I first came up with the idea, it was just so crazy. It's like, I don't know how people read it. <laughs> it just looked really cool. But I was like, let's tone it down. A yeah, let's tone it down a bit. Have mm. people be able to actually spend some time reading it. And if mm. like a lot of people, I'm told like 60% of people read things on their phones mm-hmm. or something. I could be making that up. So, But a lot of people read on their phone. So I wanted to make that a thing that people can sit on the train waiting for someone or at home and they can read on their phone. But I also wanted to make it look really nice on a desktop. So that was very important to me, the design aspect and legibility. And Ileana, before we talk about some of the highlights of this new iteration of the pop manifesto, some listeners might want to know, okay, but where where exactly is Ileana based? Because I can hear an Australian twang. I am Australian, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Australian, but I live in Los Angeles and I've lived there for a really long time. Before that, I lived in New York, but I grew up mostly in Australia. Also, when I was little, in the former Yugoslavia, in Montenegro. My dad's from Kosovo and my mom's from Montenegro. So I've traveled a lot (laughs) through the years. (laughs) So Los Angeles is now my home. I love it there. I love a little bit of sun. You're in the right place. (laughs) And it's a great place, especially for what I do in starting the magazine, that so many people come through L.A., especially in the creative fields. And I get to like, as I mentioned before, the importance of meeting with people IRL. I will at some point get someone I want Mm -hmm. in that city to interview. And that's quite a cool thing to have instead of relying on, like I'll never choose someone to interview if I can't actually physically see them. It's a city that is happening, right? LA. Because yeah. even the fashion industry, I see that there's a lot of people going to LA as well. Before, some stuff used to be in New York. Of course, LA was yeah. always for cinema, but I feel that LA is having a moment. Yeah, now. I feel like people are realizing that probably Los Angeles is beyond film and television mm-hmm. and that there's a lot of, like, especially in lifestyle, maybe streetwear and up-leveled versions of that. I think Los Angeles is, like, growing and there's, like, a much more... And also, I think maybe luxury brands and bigger brands are realizing that... There's a huge market there and that people are really interested in coming to L.A. to do work in that way. Let's talk about some of the names from the first iteration of the Pop Manifesto now. Oliver Sim, yeah. what a great name to get as well. I know, I love uh, him. He's so, his last, his, oh, his last, his first album debut is like so good, so unique. Yeah. Um, he played it to me before it came out and I was just like, this is so special. And it's obviously a personal story to him that he's telling in there. And it was really fun to interview him and hear his reasonings for do, needing, feeling the need to write that album and how important also, the XX remains to him. So it was like really, it was a real, just like very enlightening conversation that I had with him. And he's like easy to shoot as well. <laughs> very photogenic man. <laughs> easy. That, that, that makes the job easy yeah. for you. And how are you going to put stories at the Pop Manifesto? Because of course, we're talking about digital, although I will ask you about print in a minute. Are you releasing quite a few stories throughout the week or how does yeah. that work? Because people read in different ways as well. 100%. The goal is kind of to make it into like seasonal 
So four times a year, I'll put out throughout the period, like、mm -hmm. a kind of issue or a, like a grouping of articles. So right now, there's like the first drop. It sounds like I'm dropping clothing on that. Like it's the first you drop. Yeah, it's always, it's always <laughs>、yeah. like that. Yeah, it's my first drop, <laughs> and then I have a bunch of articles that are just like waiting to come out, like throughout the next like month, and then I will be doing a limited edition like zine, printed zine for it, which I'm very excited about. Despite what I said before about how important digital media is, it's fun to have something that's like print. I just didn't want that to be the focus for people. The focus is online. But I love. I know people love touching things,、mm. especially if it's an artist they like. I think they want to keep it.、Perhaps. Exactly, and the important thing about also what I'm doing at the Pop Manifesto is having exclusivity in photos. So I don't use people's press shots. I have to be able to shoot them.、Mm -hmm. Not. I'm not obviously shooting. I get people to shoot.、Mm -hmm. <laughs> But I like the idea of like creating the aesthetic for the whole Pop Manifesto, and I'm not a super fan of like just. You know, it's taking images from online to do a feature. That's also why it's like takes a bit longer to do features for me because I have to be able to shoot them. You know, wherever they are in the world, it's easy to interview people, but obviously the shooting, finding the time, and etc. So that's important for me as well. And so I have, you know, for everyone, like for example, for Oliver, I have what you see online is some of the images, and so it gives me opportunity to use more and have that a bit more exclusive imagery that you can't see online in the publication, and hopefully people. Who liked the article online would buy the magazine to see more. Thank you very much, Eliana. For more, go to thepopmanifesto.com. That's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor Jack Jewers. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. We're back next week at the same time, 10 a.m. every Saturday. Meanwhile, subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you: The Pet Shop Boys. Pop kids, you've been listening to the stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me.